Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We know Leviticus is not Hebrew, right? So why is it called Leviticus? Levites. Levites, right? Because this is the priestly handbook. So the book of Ayikra, the book of Leviticus, is really a handbook for the priests. So we're not sure, actually, if this was a handbook for the priests or a handbook about what the priests were supposed to do that was actually for the people. If it's for the priests, duh. Okay, right? Here's 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 your manual for what y'all need to be about. If it's for the people, why why would it be written for the people? They're not doing this. Well, so it's not secret. So if it is in fact written for the people, this is radical. Absolutely radical. And even if it's written for the priests, but codified and put in people's hands who were encouraged to read, it is still radical. Because in the ancient Near East, right, cultic practice was secret. Only the priests knew what was happening. The people had no idea. They brought their offerings, and the priest took it inside um, the shrine, and the people have no idea past there what's going on, and did not read. The, the, what we know about the written record is not hugely extensive. We have, we have a lot from the ancient Near East um, and are always recovering more. Um, but it was a scribal tradition that was reserved for the clergy, right? So it was not, people did not engage in writing and reading uh, normally. Yes, Rita? If it's related to the priests, why is it Leviticus, which is more like Levites, not priests? Why is it called Kohanim or something? So in our tradition, it is. It's Sefer Kohanim, right? The the book for the priests. Um, priests are all Levites, right? They're, the Kohanim are one clan of Levites, tracing their lineage back to mythic Aaron, right? Um, and Moshe, too, in that in that sense. Um, but but the priesthood is one aspect of what had to happen as part of the daily. Ritual. The Levites are responsible for a lot of stuff that happens, including the stuff. Right? They're in charge of all the stuff. Um, and they are the ones who will protect the sacred space from encroachment. And they take the responsibility for encroachment. So they are the ones who are on the front lines. They are the ones in danger all the time, the Levites. If you need 10 people for a minion, they're not prescribed to be anything. They can be Levites or Kohanim or... And so that or in itself is a very democratic uh, uh, entry. So minion as a practice is very democratic and is after this. Minion would have had no meaning here. What is minyan? What do you need a minyan for? Prayer. Prayer. Public Prayer. worship. There was no, there were no worship services that the people would have done, right? All of the service, the avodah service, was by the Levites and the Kohanim on behalf of the people. And when does the minyan come in? So minyan comes in when the second temple is destroyed. And now prayer takes the place of sacrifice. So we're clear, yes, that when this goes away as a system, it is preserved in our tradition by the rabbis instituting a public worship service every place there would have been an offering daily in the temple. This is why we get Musaf 
on Shabbat and holidays, right? An added service because there was an added sacrifice on Shabbat and holidays. Yeah, or on holidays. So minyan becomes important when you need a quorum for public worship, right? All right so that's after this and is democratizing in in a way also. <coughs> so so it, given that this was accessible to the people, there already is a huge change in ancient Israel from normative ancient Near Eastern cult practice in that Israelites had access to information about what the priests were supposed to be doing. So if I know what the priests are supposed to be doing, in some way, the people are empowered to hold the priests accountable. That is a very different reality than the rest of the ancient world. Very different. So this is one of the places where we see, even in its very ancient form, Ancient Israelite religion was different. There was already a movement happening um, within ancient Israel that is counter to the universal understanding in that region um, and becomes the force that results in rabbinic Judaism and all of the democratizing effects, right, that, that are a result of rabbinic Judaism. So we are very similar in the book of Leviticus to a lot of what's happening in the region. We're very similar to other cultures that understood that one of the ways we encounter the divine is to offer something as a sacrifice. Right? This was universal. So we go, ew, or what? Like, okay, fine. We can have our responses. That's fine. But in the ancient world, this is universal. It's There is no discussion. Of course you're going to sacrifice. Duh. Like, how else are you supposed to, like, affect this this relationship? What's interesting about, for me, um, the fact that we are grounded, of course, in Hebrew, is it gets closer to understanding what is going on when we talk about sacrifice. So sacrifice is a word meaning what? To give up. Yeah. So sacred. Exactly. So you just said two things, Bert. <laughs> you, you just said two different things. Because what you did was you went first to English. Mm-hmm. Our understanding in English of what that word is. And then you caught yourself and you went back to the root of that word, just which is not sacred. in English. Right. right? So sacrifice, you know, just by kind of looking at the the right the letters and stuff we know has to do something about making sacred but we come to understand sacrifice as i give something up we say i'm sacrificing for my children right every day i say this (laughs) every day she's like yeah 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 mom whatever so so making sacred sacrifice about giving something up What is it in Hebrew? Korban. Korban. And korban is from the root? Karen. Right, so it's kuf, resh, vet. near, right? bring near. So for us, this whole business of sacrifice is something about near. And because it's got... A hay, a, ca- a causative hay at the front, lehakriv, means to cause something to come near. Lehakriv, to sacrifice. So, so if you can just take out of your brain the word sacrifice, and instead, every time we read the text, we read to cause to come near, it makes a little more sense. What's going on? Is it to, to cause us to come near to you? <laughs> or to, for God to come near to us? Uh-huh. Or, or to come near to each other? Yes, yes, and yes. Right? So that to me is the beauty of the Hebrew. Is That's the word 
bringing near is the term. Now, who's coming near to whom? <laughs> Presumably, I would risk saying I believe it's both ways. And that's the point of this ritual is I, I cause a nearness between me and the divine when I bring my pigeon. Yes? Originally, of course, all of this sacrifice stuff is about I should be on the altar and something stands in for me so that I'm not, I'm not dead. That, that's where all of this, right, impulse begins. <laughs> but by the time we see it in ancient Israel, there's still some of that when we use the verb likaper to atone, right? So something, something stands in and has happened to it, which should happen to me. But I, there's a substitute that atones for me. So it's still there. But already when we start to see this language of korban, lehakriv, there, there's already another, there's another development that's happened that's really truly about the divine human encounter, the divine human relationship. Once upon a time, Israelites could only eat sacrificial meat. Why do I bring that up? Talk to me about the implications of that. If only the, the priests were allowed near the sacrifice place, or in the sacrificial ritual, um, then they, were they supposed to bring it out then to the people? Correct. So when you offered something as an Israelite, unless it was a holocaust, right? Unless it was completely burned up on the altar, you ate it. You and the priests so that was the only shared that meal with God. So that was the only meat or... Once upon a time, sacrificial meat was the only meat Israelites could eat. There was not centralized worship. We assume that. We take that for granted based on the Mishkan and later the temple, right? The tabernacle, the portable shrine in the desert, and later the temple. But once upon a time... An Israelite could build an altar. Jacob, we see Jacob building an altar. Noah gets off the boat and offers a sacrifice. So you could do it anywhere. You could build an altar, make your sacrifice, eat your dinner with your family, right? You know, a, a goat or whatever would have been, would have fed about 30 people. And you didn't have refrigeration, you didn't have freezers, so you had to eat it or it went bad. So it was a huge deal. Talk to me about the implication of only being allowed to eat sacrificial meat. We were vegetarians in the Garden of Eden, and then when we take another life and eat another life, we have to somehow, we can't just take it. It's got to be somehow sacredized, sacralized. Corbanized. Like Corbanized. <laughs> well, when you eat something, it becomes alive in you again. Mm -hmm. it, it gives it uh, an eternal or a legacy or a relationship. Or a relationship. And it is a relationship. But, but mainly, it's feeding life. So I could just do that. I could just take this pigeon and now it gives me life. Okay? Yeah, but it hasn't been. But we have to do a sanctified. You're right there, Lisa, you're right there. So you know what you're saying, because the instinct, the impulse, when we connect the dots goes, oh, of course. I don't know about y'all, but I walk through the grocery store throwing whatever's on sale from the meat department into my cart. And I am embarrassed to say, turn this part of it off. <laughs> More than once, I've gotten the meat home, I get busy, and the next couple of days, I have to work in the evening, and by day three or four, what happens to that to meat? I have to throw it away. I'm ashamed to say, I have thrown away meat that I have not cooked. Okay. There cannot be a more wanton disregard for the life of the cow that was slaughtered in order for me to go to Ralph's 
than for me to take it, throw it in my basket, have it rot in my refrigerator, and I throw it away. That would have been unspeakable to ancient Israelites. Unthinkable, heinous, a hideous act of disregard for the life that I helped take. Why am I hammering this? Because so often we look at this as primitive. Ooh, sacrifice. We are so beyond that. That really, really, well, I'm a little disturbed that we're so far beyond understanding what it means to consume another living being so that we have more life. I'm distressed by my own detachment from the awareness. And I eat meat. I am not an apologist. Like I, I do not apologize. I'm an omnivore. I eat everything. And, um, but I'm saying I am not morally and ethically in a comfortable place with my own relationship to eating meat. They were. They raised those flocks, they tended those flocks, and when it was time to eat it, they slit its throat right there at the entrance with the priests. The blood was used right as a sacralized ritual, and it was understood that they were drawing close to the source of life and giving thanks for this life that enabled them the protein to go on in a very dangerous world. They connected all of those dots and they shared that meat with the, you know, the officials, you know, who, who were the clergy and with each other and they understood they were sharing that meal with God, the source of that meat. There is a respect there that we have almost completely lost in our <coughs> consumption. We feel absolutely entitled to kill other things and to eat them with complete disregard for the suffering and treatment of those animals. I don't know. I don't eat veal anymore. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, there's a, there's a limit even to like what I can countenance for myself. I'm not saying for anybody else. For me, that's kind of the line. And um, they would never countenance that. Never. It was shechted. Still, meat has to be shechted, right? You can't club an animal to death and have it be kosher. It must be a sharp knife that goes through the windpipe, and the animal loses consciousness and feels no pain. Okay, is it a happy thing for the animal? Of course not. But when we, if you've seen any of those movies, fooding... Like any of those movies that really talk about how meat comes to us, it, it Israelites would have been shocked at our callous disregard for other life. So I just want that to be our context whenever we talk now about um, about these rituals, about about that um, reality for them of sacrifice. Diane, I was going to say, isn't it? One of the reasons we also say the Brahma before we eat, because it basically reminds us of the, of the gift. And I remember my father, I was brought up on a farm when we had to kill the animals, whether chicken or whatever. He would always say a prayer. Mm-hmm. Before I was brought up on that. Saying a prayer before you slaughtered the animal? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's also so no accident. We have so many, as Jews, today, we have so many things we do that are centered around a meal and eating, whether it be the Shabbat meal on Friday, whether it be a Seder, which is coming up, and that doesn't come out of nowhere. Right? So these these rituals of brachot, of blessings, of prayer... Are, are all mm-hmm. another iteration, uh, right, of our trying to lehakriv, trying to draw close. Because we, we don't have it anymore. We lost it. With the destruction of the second temple, we lost it. 
So how do we struggle back to connecting to this and yet we don't have it? So, you know, and so brachot, blessings, are the ways the rabbis redirect our attention to the divine human relationship before eating, when you wake up, before anything, right? Brachot are all about the rabbis trying to figure out what to do once all these rituals are gone. So now it becomes verbal, right? Now words take the place of rituals. How did they come about differentiating between what is shellfish, you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat uh, certain things, and how and when did that happen? So it's in Torah, Kashrut is in Torah, it's in Leviticus, and it's very clear what's off limits. It's very clear. What's permitted and what's forbidden is spelled out. In, in this Parsha? No, not in, in this Parsha. book. This book. In the book of Leviticus. Right? And the interesting thing is with animals that walk, that walk, yeah. they, where you may not know the name of the animal, they describe it has to do with what is the hoof. So you can look at the hoof and based on what the hoof is, you can decide what to do. So they name specific animals and then there are characteristics. But it says, as they say, it says here well, in this book. Chickens don't have hoofs and we can eat those. They're birds. They're birds. Oh. Birds don't have hoofs. Right, but <laughs> so so it doesn't have to have a split up because it's, it's a bird. Birds but don't have those. Talk about what kinds of birds we cannot right. eat. Right, right. We can't eat. That's that's in here. That's in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, right. we're, we're so there's lots of theories about how we get kashrut, which is not today's discussion. Okay. but you know, is is an interesting is an interesting discussion. It doesn't tell us why. So we don't know. We have to guess. So there's lots of educated guesses about how we got what the list we have here. Uh, but we're going to look a little bit at the text. And, and actually, I want to start. Let's go to, to um, page 571 in the Women's Torah Commentary. 571. 571. It's interesting. In, in modern Hebrew, uh, relatives are co Right? Relatives are those who are close, close to us. Right. Blanche? My eye always picks out the things about women. Good. Uh, <laughs> religious activities carried out only by women were part of Israelite household life. And then next to it, the priests became feminized men. Wow. Cooking and cleaning in God's holy dwelling. I can't believe it. Right? No, it's true. I, I, still, I still prepare burnt offerings when I cook. <laughs> Mickey says he still prepares burnt offerings whenever he cooks. The son in law Right. So. Although we want to see that as a good thing, priests becoming feminized men, really, unfortunately, in the ancient world, it was another example of it's the work women generally do, but when it's important and sacred, the boys do it. Right? Like The spin is lovely. In fact, it's another way that women's expertise was co-opted by men. Women were the cooks and the cleaners. Nobody cared. When it came to God's house, it was only men. So it's very interesting, right? So it's a very interesting, that's a whole discussion. Right? All right, so so we look at Vayikra, we look at the beginning, and somebody read, um, somebody read from the beginning. God and I called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When any of you presents an offering of cattle to Adonai, you shall choose your offering from the herd or from the flock. If your offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall make your offering a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before Adonai. You shall lay a hand upon the head of the burnt offering that it may be acceptable in your behalf in expiation for you. 
the bulls shall be slaughtered before Adonai, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into sections. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay out wood upon the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall lay out the sections with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. His entrails and legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a pleasing odor to Adonai. Okay, so we're getting here the... The offering that is lichaper, right, to atone, to make expiation, right? So this is the substitute, right, for you, you Israelites, this, this one that's gonna be burned, this ola. <clears throat> so, and we get, of course, always the entrails have to be burnt. Why? Why do they, why does it Torah have to say the entrails are put on the altar and turned into smoke? So they're not red. Yeah, Egyptians. Maybe they had, you know, I, they I would look at them and divine all, from them. All the of the neighbors used them for divination. You looked at the liver, you looked at the kidneys, and you could divine certain things. It was absolutely forbidden for Israelites to use animals for divination in any way, shape, or form. They were for food or for an Olah as a holocaust only. Never was it allowed to take an animal's life to read its entrails. So Torah always makes clear that the liver, all that stuff goes on the altar and is completely burned up. Okay. Why does it repeatedly say Aaron's sons, comma the priests? It would seem to me that that's important because it's it's re- repeated throughout. Who do you think that was important to? <laughs> the priests. <laughs> <laughs> there is an argument for this being written by the priests. One place scholars look to prove this is written by P, the priestly source. Is exactly that. Aaron's sons, comma, the Kohanim. Because we read this lovely story about two brothers, each with their own distinct and unique role. What happened in fact? What was going on in fact in the formation of early Israel? (laughs) (laughs) Good, Laura Diamond. You had the Aaronid clan and the Mushite clan. And they were in conflict. When they figure it out, right, when they work it through, we inherit their story of their founders, Aaron and Moses, who were brothers. And Moses had this very special relationship with God, but so did Aaron. And what happened with Moshe's sons? I came back. Moses' sons? You never hear about We never hear anything about Moses' sons. What about Aaron's sons, Carol? Yeah. <laughs> Is that hmm? Yes. Okay, then they became, went too close to God and were But That's rest, two of them. But the rest of his sons became the priests. Right, right. <laughs> so Aaron's sons, the priests. Aaron's sons, comma, the priests. We get Aaron's sons over and over and over and over and over. Nothing here. So Moses has his place, but it does not become the priestly dynasty. Aaron does. So this rivalry results in a division of power. Moshe is credited with the prophetic power and Aaron with the priestly authority that goes genealogically through, hereditarily through his line. That's the piece between 
the Aranid, and the Mushite clans. Forever suffering as priests as punishment for the God forbid that it would have been seen as punishment. It is a sacred responsibility that possibly evolves from, right? Um, wait, I wanted to say one more thing about that. I can't remember what. That's because you're 50. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Tomorrow. <laughs> Can I ask two questions about the Hebrew? Bivakasha. <laughs> is the vav at the beginning of Vayikra, is that a connective? Mm. Mm-mm. No. The vav conversive. Okay. It, com- it converts the past tense and the future tense to the past. Okay, the other question is the translation here, which I think is the JPS translation, keeps on, the, all the instructions are what a person should do. It says he, 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 right? The other translation, which I assume has to do with trying to degenderize it, but it says you is what she was reading. What is the Hebrew? So the, does the um, Hebrew say one or the other, or is it? Hebrew, because what she read, it's like you shall do this, you shall do this. Hebrew you is still gendered. You male. Then why is one translation you and the other one he? That was my question. Where? This, okay, the translation here, okay. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall make his offering a male. He shall bring it. He shall this. He shall this. And what Carol read was you shall this, you shall that, you shall that. And I because didn't know if it was the same thing or different. Or because the women's translation says that in English they've made it non-gendered. Right, but you is very different from he. So <laughs> no, I mean it's different. Right, but he, she, and you are. But the women's Torah commentary, I think, mm-hmm. what Laura's saying is that they made a choice right. to use gender. you mm-hmm. because in English it's, it's not, not gendered. gendered. Okay. Whereas in Hebrew, it's very clearly gendered. But does the Hebrew say you or he? That was really my question. He. Oh, the Hebrew does say he. he. Okay. Unless it's mikem, from y'all, which we're going to talk about. But using the you form is more, not just non-gendered, it's more inclusive and it's more direct and personal. Because he can be someone else. Right. But you, whoever you are, male or female... It's yes, true. Right, but that's not what the Hebrew. No. Right. So, 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 that was, that so was his question, question is why? <laughs> no, I, why I is it not translated? Yeah, I think I know why. But <laughs> so yeah, so I you're confirming your suspicion right. that in fact it is male Israelite <laughs> that gets translated into you by the editors. Okay. So by El Moshe. So who's talking? Who's karaing? God. What is Likro? To call. To call. So Vayikra El Moshe literally means, and he called to Moshe. Does mean and? <laughs> so. That's why I asked you about the book. Vayikra. Strange way to start a book with the word yeah, and. Right? Connectors. Um. But it's above conversive, so it's, it does, you oh. don't have to say and, actually. Oh. So, he called to Moshe, right? Mm-hmm. So, Vayikra, we said, who's doing the action? God. Mm-hmm. And ye crying to Moses, right? Any Sefer Torah in the whole entire world, ever, anywhere, is has a tiny little olive. Why? <laughs> I was, guess what? Just going to go there. So look at your text. Do you see? So scribal traditions are preserved even in printed chumashim. Even in printed Bibles, scribal traditions are preserved. So any Bible worth its salt that you open has a tiny little aleph 
at the end of the first word of the portion. Everybody see it? Everybody see it? Oh, yeah. Yes? Where are you? Here. Yes? Yeah. See that tiny little olive? You don't even have to read Hebrew to see that the font size is different on that olive <coughs> than the olive of L. The next word. Right? This tiny little olive, if you look at the very next letter after the tiny olive, it's the same letter. But notice the font size is different. So this is a printed version showing us that in every Torah scroll ever, that olive is written small. That's what I count on, Linda. Job security. Ask again, Margo. Yes, just here. Just this time. Vaikra's all over the Bible. Only here is the Aleph little. And the other words aren't there with small letters? I mean, this is not the only small letter. Somewhere. This is the only one? This is the only time the Aleph oh, at the Aleph. end of Vayikra okay. is written small. But there are, there are other, a few other examples of these small letters. I don't know if that's true. I know that there's examples of big letters. And what is it about this particular place that requires the small ha, ha, ha. So, one of the favorite interpretations... Of this, one of the famous midrashim is that who who wrote the Torah according to our tradition? Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Moses wrote it. God dictated it. Moshe wrote it. So if Moshe wrote it, Vayikra el Moshe, and he called to Moshe. Moshe's writing that down. <laughs> so according to the rabbinic tradition, who did God call to in the sentence? Moshe. But Moshe is writing it. And Moshe doesn't want to brag. Moshe is the humblest of all men ever. And so with this first call to Moshe from the Ohel Moed, from the tent of meeting, Moshe makes a diminutive Aleph. And if you leave off the Aleph, if you barely know it's there, what word do you have? Vayikar. And God happened upon. Diane's like, so what, what's the difference? Why, why does it matter that this means happened upon and this means called to? It's not specific. It's like it's an accident. <laughs> so this is one of the favorite rabbinic interpretations is that Moshe doesn't want, God forbid Moshe should imply that God called to Moshe. God happened upon Moshe. <laughs> Moshe happened to be at the right place at the right time. So... Um, but is diminutive, right? And Moshe doesn't want to make it about himself, says the tradition. Which means the tradition is saying, this is not about Moshe. This is not about us. We are simply agents. We are vehicles for the divine message. It's not about us. It is always about the message. That the, it's never about the teacher. Because if it's about the teacher, already something's wrong. It's always about the teaching. Yes? And so it's a beautiful scribal tradition reminding us, yes, it's Moshe, and it doesn't matter who it is. What's important is that, right, is that we're encountering the divine, not the person. Then why does it only exist in Leviticus? Why would you think it would be throughout? Um... So the, the question is always which came first, right? This interpretation or the scribal tradition. Possibly somebody just wrote a small olive. 
<laughs> and it got copied over. Like, you know what I mean? It just is a mistake that gets repeated. But there's this beautiful midrashic tradition around this small olive. So, um, so we don't know how it happened, but uh, but it's a beautiful it's a it's a beautiful interpretation of the scribal tradition. This wasn't written down until quite late. Anyway, it started as an oral tradition, and in the oral tradition, you can't have a small letter. Correct. Well, you could. Well, you, you, could. you wouldn't no. see it. <laughs> right? I was just thinking, though, but if it was really that important to um, recognize and respect the teacher, it should be throughout the whole Torah every time that God did Again, this is, the interpretation is, it's Moshe being diminutive about God called to me, I'm not so special, I'm just the one that's that's the tool, in a good way. Um because because I think what happens so frequently in religious traditions is that the teacher is venerated. Jesus, a perfect example, right? So Buddha. Buddha. The, the, the teacher is somehow made into a semi-divine being. And, and the impulse in our tradition always is... You can't do that. Moshe is a teacher. He's a vehicle. He's not divine. Right? So all of these impulses about, you know, making Moshe smaller, not knowing where Moshe's buried, like all those ways to not lift up Moses to become something that's very close to idolatry. We don't have any sayings of Moses, do we? I can't think of a single thing where... Oh, well, Moses said right. X, Y, Z. Right. Moses says that God said... Well, well Moses, Moses talks God. to God. We have right. we have conversations well, with Moshe to God. Right. But, I mean, we don't have, like, these are the maxims of Moses. Right. We actually do from the rabbis. Right. In Perkin. Sarah? The word ikar um, in Yiddish has come to mean the essential core truth. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, but it uh, good, good, good ear. Different spelling. Ayn. Ayn. The ikar. The ikar. The ayn. Not a yud. It's not a yud. It's an ayn. But it sounds the same. Yes, it does. The ikar lole fached klal. And the important thing is not to be afraid. Yes. And yet... There are rabbis that are venerated and and and, and That's a word. Yes, 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 and yes. And so, always we have to be very careful, says Torah, right? And especially in Hasidic dynasties, right, where the Rebbe mm-hmm. has powers, right? You know, they eat at his tish, they eat the crumbs that fall from his mouth because they are imbued with such... It's a very, very tricky business and Torah's very nervous about it. My father's father worked on the estate of the Chutkafa rabbi and my father used to tell me the stories of students who would eat the crumbs from his house and the people who would come from miles around to have their disputes adjudicated. You can still see in Israel people laying down on their graves. You know, laying flat on the Rebbe's grave. So, yep. It, and Torah's very, very nervous about it. Which is, it, it's just, because it's so natural an instinct, isn't it? To like, give the charismatic leader who's closer to God than we are a whole different kind of power. And Torah is very nervous about it. With good reason. Look at the world. I'm so genius. I think about a, a book or two we have of like for children and art, where it's encouraging them to not see any mistakes. You know, when you got a mistake, it becomes something else. So you know, there's a, you spill coffee on your paper. There's going to be a mountain now. Something. And so the, the small olive and the maybe scribal goof has turned into this wonderful. Interpretation. 
Right? That's what we do. It's our sacred game, right? Right, Rita? Um, getting back to that competition between Moses and Aaron, yes. I'm wondering if that little olive, which is the beginning of our own. <laughs> oh! So Rita seeing a scribal disc is what I'm hearing. That's funny. Very funny. I mean, not hot, but like, you know, and, you know, and, and there's another olive that is, that is very famous by the rabbis and in Kabbalah. And it is, tell me, Rita Ephros, tell me the first, the first word that God speaks to the people at the mountain. Ah, really? Anochi. Really? So the Ten Commandments, God is revealing God's self, God is revealing what God wants from this people, and the first word God says to the people is? Anochi. Huh. What does Anochi start with, Rita? Aleph. What sound does an Aleph make? Silence. It depends. There's nothing unless you put a nikkudah underneath. Silence. So this, for the rabbis... Revelation begins in silence. Revelation really happens in the silence. And then what flows from there is something else. But it's in the silence of the Aleph of Anochi that Revelation begins. So when we sit today, maybe that's something we will reflect on, yes? Is um in that silence is everything. For the, Torah, our tradition. the Torah begins with a bait, not an all. The Torah begins with a bet. Indeed. Yes. Why, Bert? Now you brought it up. You know I'm gonna have to do it now. The Torah begins with a bet. How come? Because you shouldn't ask what's here. You shouldn't ask what's here, and you shouldn't ask what's here. All you need to worry about, Israelites, is that. What goes forward? Don't ask what's above. Don't ask what's below. Don't ask what came before Bereshit, what came before creation. It's not your concern. All y'all need to worry about is what happens now. Wow. I am Adonai, your God, who took you out of Egypt. Right. That's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. So this is the the first word God speaks to the people is anochi. But the rabbis point to the first thing God says to the people is not a sound. Mm -hmm. It is the silence that then manifests in content. Margo? It's surprising that the, uh, in the title of this oracle, that they don't make a little olive where? And I would think that there would be a little olive at the end of that as the title uh, or the part of Vayikra. So the, the Parsha is called Vayikra because that's the first word of the Parsha. I know. But that's the word that has a little olive. But only in the Torah. Hmm? The, 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 only the, in the, the Torah. Parsha, the Parsha titles are not in the Torah. Right. It sounds like you look at the Torah and it says Vayikra. Right. Right. It just is Vayikra. All right. So I've given you Rabbi Lord Sachs, um, talking about sacrifice. So drop down to the first paragraph, the last paragraph on the first page. Or so the verse should read. Yes. You got it? Looking at the second verse of our Torah portion, right? Two verses, y'all. <laughs> Two verses we're going to do today. Um, if when you take from among y'all a sacrifice. So looking at the Hebrew grammar, he says it sh- it's translated always when one of y'all take a sacrifice, right? From among your your from among your flocks, or it should be from among your flocks. And he says, but grammatically, that's not what the Hebrew says. 
Adam mikem ki yakriv. When one of y'all offers a sacrifice, literally in Hebrew is when one of y'all offers a sacrifice of you. What's the difference? The word order is unusual even in Hebrew. What does that mean, Pam? Well, of, of you. you. Of you. Uh, the, the sacrifice is of you and not of the animal. You're you're the sacrifice of you. So, Rab, Reb Schneer Zalman says that what we offer in sacrifice is ourselves. Our faculties, our energies, our thoughts, and our emotions. The physical form of sacrifice an animal offered on the altar is only an external manifestation of an inner act. The real sacrifice is mikem, of y'all. We give God something of ourselves. What is that? Why animals? Of course, the Hasidic tradition is going to revalue it. God forbid it's because that's what you do in the ancient world. Can't be. Why an animal? Because we're supposed to sacrifice the animal part of ourself. What does that mean? If we don't use sacrifice, if we use our word, you're supposed to offer and bring near the animal part of yourself to give it to God. We are physical beings, yes, but that is not all that we are. Go to the middle of the page. We Yet we are not simply animals. We have within us immortal longings. We can think, speak, and communicate. We can, by acts of speaking and listening, reach out to others. We are the one life form known to us in the universe that can ask the question, why? Drop down below the psalm. Physically, we are almost nothing. Spiritually, we are brushed by the wings of eternity. We have a godly soul. The nature of sacrifice, understood psychologically, is thus clear. What we offer God is not just an animal, but the nefesh habehamitz, the animal soul within us. So then he has these lovely interpretations of the three kinds of animals we just got in verse 2. What are we allowed to bring? Behema, bakal, and tzon. Right? An animal... An animal that's a specific kind, meaning cattle and flock. God forbid we should think these are just three different kinds of animals. This, of course, says the Hasidic tradition, must mean something about what kind of animal soul we're dealing with. Like, what kind of sacrifice of our animal self is that? Behema, they teach, represents the animal instinct itself. Right? Then go to the next page. <clears throat> End of that first paragraph on the on the next page. To sacrifice the animal within us, the behema, is to be moved by something more than mere survival. Alright. If you didn't take a packet, you are missing something. There were two pages. There were two pages. Yes? If you only have one, turn to the person the next to you and see if they have a different one. You have this. The other page. The other page. Yes. The page begins something more tame. Yes? The end of that paragraph. To sacrifice the animal within us is to be moved by something more than mere survival. Which also means... A bigger house. A more expensive car. Right? That part of us that is always looking, right, for mine and more. And that's how we survive. It's fine. It's fine. That's how we're designed. It's okay. And we must exercise our ability to sacrifice that for something else. The fly trapped in the bottle, right? He quotes this this wonderful piece, to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. How do you do that? How does the fly get out of the bottle? Not by continuing to ram its head against the glass, but to look up, right? We must raise our eyes just from surviving to something else, something higher, all right? To, to have a purpose 
beyond the physical world, beyond mere survival, right? Meaning, a goal. So then what else? The word bakar, cattle, in Hebrew reminds us of the word boker, dawn. I love this. I never knew this. I did not put that together. Bakar, animal, like cattle, and boker, dawn. What is the... He's saying they share a root. What does that root mean? To break through. Boker is the sun breaking through the darkness. Cattle, what do they do? They break through fences and they stampede. Right? They break through barriers. Unless constrained by fences, cattle are no respecters of boundaries. To sacrifice the bakar is to learn to recognize and respect boundaries between holy and profane, pure and impure, permitted and forbidden. Barriers of the mind can sometimes be stronger than walls. So when we sacrifice the bakar, we're sacrificing that part of us that bulldozes anything in our way. Anything that says stop. We bulldoze it. Get out of my way so I can do what I want. I can follow my drive, my instinct, whatever it is. The instinct is not bad, but we need fences. Yes? My desire is not bad, but I can't fulfill it with anybody I decide to today. Right? That that There are boundaries around our desire. That's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to both have that and be respecters of boundaries, and that's the point of all religious practice, all wisdom traditions is all about how do we place boundaries using words like should. Because we can split the atom. Should we? The brilliance, the genius to do that is fantastic. There has to be a fence that says, but we shouldn't. Can we clone human beings? Oh, the mind that could come up with that is fantastic. Should we? That would be offense. That we say our insatiable curiosity to like create a human being from human, that's so awesome. We can't do it. Cause it's wrong. Yes? Finally, tongue. Flocks represents the herd instinct, the powerful drive to move in a given direction because others are doing likewise. If there is one lesson to teach our teenagers, this is it, right? The danger of the herd instinct. The great figures of Judaism were distinguished precisely by their ability to stand apart from the herd, to be different to challenge the idols of the age, to refuse to capitulate to the intellectual fashions of the moment. That ultimately is the meaning of holiness in Judaism. Kadosh, the holy, is literally something set apart, different, separate, distinctive. Jews were the only minority in history consistently to refuse to assimilate to the dominant culture or convert to the dominant faith. The value of challenging the assumptions of the day, whatever they are, is absolutely fundamental to Judaism. One of my favorite things, you've heard me say it before, One of my favorite things is that on a page of Talmud, the halacha, the law goes according to the majority. Always. Halacha goes to the majority. Always. According to the opinion of the majority. And on that page that says, here is the law, the minority opinion is recorded. Why? Because the minority can sometimes... Eventually become the majority. Because today, it's the minority opinion. But the rabbis understood. Tomorrow, when situations have changed, and things look a little different, and the reality is different, it might be 
the majority opinion, and then it will be the halacha. Let us never assume that we've got it all figured out, right? And that today's majority opinion is going to be how we understand it tomorrow. That's your hand. And our country, even though we're a country by its majority, is based on the principle of protecting the minority. Right? All right, so go to your last page of Rabbi Lord Sachs. The paragraph that begins the refutation of this idea. You see that paragraph? Your very last page, second paragraph. Somewhere in there. We can direct our animal instincts. We can rise above mere survival. We are capable of honoring boundaries. We can step outside our environment. As Harvard neuroscientist Steven uh, Pinker put it, nature does not dictate what we should accept or how we should live. And to close this last paragraph, we can transcend the behemoth, the bakar, and the tzun. No animal is capable of self-transformation, but we are. Poetry, music, love, wonder, the things that have no survival value, but which speak to our deepest sense of being, all tell us that we are not mere animals, assemblages of selfish genes. By bringing that which is animal within us close to God, close, right? This word, lehakriv, we allow the material to be suffused with the spiritual, and we become something else. No longer slaves of nature, but servants of the living God. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.